Answers News for Wednesday, February 3rd, 2021. I'm Avery Foley. I'm here with Roger Patterson and Hello. Brian Osborne. Hey guys. Um, we're excited to be here with you today. We got a couple things to talk about here as we wait for people to jump on. Uh, first thing we want to talk about is um, our Answers Bible curriculum, um, which is our Sunday school curriculum. Yep. Roger, why don't you talk about that? You've been a little bit involved with yes, that. Yes, I That's just, right. the other day, I've been working on this project for about 10 years now, and I saved the last review file I've done on ABC through both of the versions we've done. So 10 years in the in the process. Other great members of our team who've worked on that over the years, both on the writing side and the design side. Uh, so many wonderful things. So it's a great four-year chronological through the Bible curriculum that you can use for your Sunday school. And right now we're also working on a homeschool version of this. Oh, that is, right. oh, I didn't even know. That. <laughs> There's the, the sure homeschool version didn't. is is in process because we know a lot of families have used the Sunday school version and just adapted it into their mm -hmm. homeschool. But this is going to be developed specifically for that with a grading structure and all those types of things. Uh, great curriculum, lots of wonderful resources, teaching kids how they can trust the Bible. And the other great thing about it is it's uh, not grouped into different age categories as far as what they're studying. It's taught at different levels, but everybody's learning the same basic lesson yep. at the same time. Mm -hmm. So you can get the whole family on the same page, linking that family to the home and to the church and all those pieces together mm -hmm. very effectively. Which it really makes it easy for the family to talk about what they learned that day. Mm -hmm. And of course, the parents will get the same information, but at a deeper level. And so they can mm -hmm. further the conversation. That's really good for the family in a lot of mm -hmm. different ways. It's coming out at the perfect time, too, because my son starts kindergarten in the fall. So I'm like, perfect this time. is perfect. This is perfect timing <laughs> for me. Uh, another um, part of the Answers Bible Curriculum for homeschool is there's a video component that Brian and I have been working on, right. um, building blocks with Brian and Avery, where we're gonna, we have an interactive timeline and we have a video that goes with each lesson where we do an object lesson and things yep. like that. So we're pretty excited about that element as well. So um, definitely go to AnswersBibleCurriculum.com. Check it out. You can try some sample lessons. You can see a sample episode of Building Blocks. Um, I definitely encourage you to check that out and uh, order it for your family. You will absolutely love it. Um, the other thing we want to mention here is Answers VBS. Um, VBS season is quickly approaching. Churches are starting to kind of plan what they're going to do for this summer. Um, so if, if you're involved with that with your church, um, I encourage you to go to Answers vbs.com to check out this year's, which is Mr. Island tracking down the one true God. So who is God? Um, and, and really helping kids to understand that we know who God is from his word, mm. not from what the culture around us tells us. There's all kinds of false ideas about God, all kinds of false gods in the culture. We go to the word of God to find out who God is. Um, so we're going to study the, some of the attributes of God as I discover the one true God um, in a really fun um, theme there with, uh, you know, tropical and all that. Sounds really great in February. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, definitely encourage you to go um, and check out uh, Answers VBS. And I tell you what, I so love our VBS because it has all the good meat our ministry is well known mm -hmm. for producing. So it's got the good content, good biblical content, a lot of Bible in there, but also all, all the great fluff of the activities, the interaction, and the object lessons built into it. So it's a great combination snacks. of both the fun stuff, the yeah. snacks, snacks, right? <laughs> snacks. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and all the, the things, the snacks, content. the games, the crafts, all of that reinforces the main lesson to really help it kids does. take home that main point. Um, so definitely encourage you to uh, to check that out. All right, we've got people checking in from Queensland, Australia, and New Zealand, and Oregon, and Switzerland, wow. and all over the place. We know we've got some people in the audience here from Tennessee and some oh, yeah. other places. So mm -hmm. great to have you all joining us today. We've got South Africa, the UK on YouTube, um, cool. Ontario, Canada, woohoo, shout out to my to people back <laughs> home. Uh, yeah, lots of people 
Evidently, they're all on Ken's Facebook page because I'm not getting any on Answers Facebook page. I'm on the YouTube channel. If you want to hop on Answers Facebook page, I'm following that. All right, just letting you know. (laughs) All right, so our first. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Brian. (laughs) I'm at a a table by myself, and then there's nobody (laughs) on my Facebook page. Don't worry, we'll let you talk once. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so our first story that we have here, um, our fluff item as we get started, kind of a fun one. Um, I thought this one was really sweet. Parents of four adopted children and one biological child welcome quadruplets. Wow. There you go. <laughs> so this story is so cool. So this, this couple um, were unable to have children due to a variety of different issues. And so they decided to foster and through the foster care system adopt. And they adopted a sibling set of three. And then um, that particular sibling set, there was another baby born mm. as part of that family. So they adopted that baby as well. So they adopted yep. four children, a sibling set of Love four. It. And then they got pregnant and had a baby. And then she got pregnant with quadruplets. <laughs> now, I know a little bit about this because we started out with twins, which was hard to get started with. Welcome to parenting. Yes, and uh, it, that was a little bit of a shock, but I can't imagine. So we ha- at one point, we had three under three, three in diapers and all that wow. fun stuff. In three years, they've gone from <laughs> yes. zero children to nine children this in three years. This is a little years. more than three. So I... I've got a little bit of sympathy there, but not, not as much as, as they might be experiencing. Oh, it's so fun, though. I love this story. It's so adorable and just such a wonderful example of loving kids and being willing to open up your home to I so love it. Kids. I can't imagine having four babies at the same time. <laughs> Right, changing four diapers, four kids throughout the night has to be chaotic, but it has to be also awesome at the same time. Mm-hmm. Which I love what Maxine, the mother, said. She said that becoming a mom was the most meaningful and fulfilling role of her lifetime, which is so true and so so powerful, and it's so, so counter cultural. She's a yeah. rebel. She is. Yes. She's a true rebel. That right? is not what our culture teaches. That being a mom is, you know, it, it, they don't. Our culture doesn't value act it. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't doesn't treat it that way. Yeah. Um, towards the end of the article, they talk about how when she found out she was pregnant with quadruplets, um, which is very rare to naturally conceive quadruplets, the doctor um, suggested that they um, abort two of the babies so that the other two had a better chance of surviving. Now, which now is they would have said, let's have a selective reduction, reduction that mm-hmm. little euphemistic term. And thankfully, the parents were like, no, we're not doing that. And all four babies were born at 32 weeks, mm-hmm. perfectly healthy by a C-section. They're all doing great. Um, so... I'm just thinking, as parents, how could you, if they chose to do that, how could you look at your kids later down the road and think, oh, we got two siblings, we killed off when they were in your mother's womb, right. and you made it by 50-50 chance, any, many, many, mo. I mean, it's kind of, yeah. how could you do that with any sort of sincerity or love or confidence, you know? So, By the way, people are popping on my Facebook page now. I appreciate that. Alan in New Zealand. Hey, and then David from Australia and a couple of others. I see Rose from Ohio. So thank you for coming on this Facebook page. All right. Appreciate that. All right. So our first item here is from Live Science. How do scientists figure out how old things are? And the subtitle is, how does dating, scientifically speaking, work? So this is an article talking about um, carbon-14 dating and radiometric dating. Yeah. Um, so why don't you explain kind of a little bit about those? Yeah, so the, the basic idea here is we can take these uh, radioactive isotopes. For example, carbon-14 is an unstable isotope of carbon. Uh, carb- carbon normally has 12 uh, protons and neutrons, its mass number, together. Mm-hmm. And so it's an unstable arrangement, and it decays back into nitrogen, over time, and we can look at the ratio of carbon-12 to carbon-14 in a sample, 
and make some calculations based on that. One of the most interesting things in this article to me is something we see in these types of articles all the time, is they've actually misrepresented their interpretations as data. Mm -hmm. right. So one thing they say here, uh, t explaining that process of the, the radiocarbon decay, it says that allows them to measure the age of an organic piece of matter by comparing those ratios. Mm -hmm. And that's not what they're doing. They're not measuring the age. They're actually measuring the ratio of the isotopes that are present, mm -hmm. and that's observable, repeatable science. We can all agree on those things. But then they're bringing different assumptions into that to actually calculate those values. So when you read in an article like this that they've measured the age of something, that's not a true statement because mm -hmm. they can't get out a ruler or some type of mass spectrometer. They can use those things to measure the <clears throat> ratios of elements, but not the age. Okay, that has mm -hmm. to be an interpretation or a calculation that they make based on those things. So they're actually misrepresenting things. This is a bait and switch. They're giving you an interpretation and telling you it's data. So you've got to be aware of that as you read things like this. Mm -hmm. So what are some of those assumptions behind it, Brian, that... There we go, Michael. <laughs> that helps, right? There are at least three major assumptions they're assuming as they look at these isotopes and their ratios. They're assuming there's been no change of the rate of decay. They're assuming the rate of decay has always been the same as we observe today. They're assuming they can know the initial conditions of the isotopes, how, many, how much of the isotopes were in the original rock samples, and they can't know the initial conditions because they weren't there. They're just assuming those based on their worldview. And mm -hmm. they're assuming there's been no contamination in the rock in its years of existence. Mm -hmm. And so you can't know any of those things for sure. You weren't there in history. You assume them to be true. And if you start with the wrong assumptions about the initial conditions, you can likely get the wrong conclusions, which is where their worldview really leads them astray. Mm -hmm. A good example of this is an hourglass. Just say, for example, you walked into this room or started watching this show, and you see the hourglass on the table, and it's got half the sand at the top, half the sand at the bottom. You didn't see the initial conditions. You just saw it just like this. You would assume it's an hourglass, it's half full, half empty. It's been sitting there for roughly half an hour. But you're assuming the sand has always fallen at the same rate, there's been no contamination, and you know the initial amount of sand in both the top and bottom chambers. But if your assumptions are wrong, your conclusions are wrong. What if when you weren't here, I actually cooled the glass down and it constricted and slowed the rate of the falling of the sand? That would change your calculations and thus your conclusions. What if when you weren't here, I screwed the top off, added sand into the top, to change the amount of the ratios. That would change your conclusions. Or what if one minute before you got here, I just flipped it like this, half for the top, half at the bottom. In each case, your conclusions would be wrong if you start with the assumption that must have been empty at the bottom and full at the top at the beginning. Yeah, and yes. we think about that with respect to the carbon-14. Right. Mm -hmm. It's formed in the upper atmosphere as different solar radiation bombards the atmosphere and the molecules up there. And it's formed there, and then creatures take it into their body as it's incorporated into plants through carbon dioxide absorption. And then supposedly the clock starts ticking when the organism dies, when it's no longer taking that carbon source into its body. But what if the rate of formation was different in the past? And we know that as the, uh, the different structures around the earth that are there to protect us from those rays are altered, we yeah. get faster or slower formation of that carbon. And so we have to account for all of those things. That's right. And we can't just get these numbers and calculate this. We've got to take all of those things into, mm -hmm. into consideration. And from a biblical perspective, we know that those things uh, that are giving us ages of 50,000 to 80,000 years for carbon-14 can't be reliable because that's long 
uh, long past the biblical mm -hmm. age of the earth. Mm -hmm. And just a couple things to think about. It's really kind of interesting they mentioned down here. However, with carbon-14 dating in particular, um, anything over really 100,000 years of age should have no detectable carbon-14. Mm -hmm. All right? And what's interesting about that is we find organic remnants all around the world that are supposedly millions of years old that have large amounts of carbon-14 still in Things them. like coal and oil coal, and diamonds. Coal, oil, mm -hmm. diamonds, dinosaur bones. And so a great confirmation that they are definitely not millions of years old. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So lots of stuff here. Just bear in mind the assumptions. That's really key in all of this. Your assumptions drive your conclusions. And if you start with the wrong worldview, you'll get the wrong conclusions. Mm -hmm. All right, this next one comes from The Guardian. I only know one God, and that's me. Non-believers on the meaning of life. So this is an article where they interviewed um, several different people who hold to various versions of agnosticism, atheism, humanism, a whole, there's a Satanist in here, a whole bunch of different people that are all basically would identify as non-believers, non-religious, even though everyone ultimately is religious, but right. they would identify that way. And they ask them questions about the meaning of life and what does it mean to them. And you really see a common theme throughout, even though these people have all these different backgrounds, you know, you've got Satanists, you've got secular Jews, you've got all these different people, you really see a common theme there. And it's summed up pretty well in that headline. I only know one God and that's me. This idea that you get to, you get to be your own God. In humanism, you get to decide what's right and wrong for yourself. You get to invent your own meaning. Um, and, and you really just see that reflected in all these different people's answers to these yeah. different questions. And as they introduce the article, you get this very interesting uh, juxtaposition. It says, in countries once dominated by churches characterized by patriarchy, ritual, and hierarchy, all very negative things, mm -hmm. The pews have emptied and people have found other sources of solace, spirituality, and morality. So they're presenting those things as positive. So the right. old repressive church right. bad, yeah. the new spirituality that you make up for yourself good. Even in the, the framing of this article, you mm -hmm. already know the bias of the Definitely. author. <laughs> just in the, first, in the first sentence or two he's written there. So this is a very interesting piece. And I picked up the same theme in all of these as Avery mentioned. Every, every one of these is focused on self. And mm -hmm. we could ultimately call these all forms of humanism mm -hmm. because they're saying man is the measure of all things. I can determine what is true. I can use science. I can use, I can blend in some ritualism. I can use the ideas of atheistic Satanism and all these different things and come up with the truth that suits mm -hmm. me best and that fulfills me. And that's kind of the drive that they all Absolutely. had behind them is what's mm -hmm. going to fulfill me. And mm -hmm. it's important to note that this worldview is very dominant in our culture and throughout the West, even around yes. the world today. They may note here in America at the very beginning of the article that roughly 26% of those surveyed here in the survey in America claim to be atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular, no religious affiliation. So over a quarter. Right? Yeah. And that's, that's a big change from even just 2009, which was just 17%, which was a big change mm -hmm. from 10 years before that. And really, we're following the trajectory of Europe and Britain. And right now mm -hmm. in Britain, over half of the people in Britain claim to be atheistic, non-religious, agnostic. And so this mm -hmm. is a, something we'll bump into more and more. And it's really interesting, as you guys already said, people, they have the same things. They're looking for meaning. They're looking for purpose. And they're trying to find it in and of themselves. And, and really, if you reject God, what are you left with other than yourself to determine what truth is? Mm -hmm. So they take all these ideas. They look at the world around them. They try to make sense of reality. And then they, by their own thinking, determine in their minds what they think is best, right, and good. But that makes them as God. You reject mm -hmm. God, you become as your own God. That's a lie as old as Genesis it's, chapter it's 3. Genesis 3, yeah, right? it's the same thing. And mm -hmm. the fact that they're looking for meaning and purpose, 
Well, we know that why that happens within a biblical worldview. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us God has set eternity in our hearts. We are made in his image. Mm-hmm. So we're community, seeking those things. Community is another All thing community. that's a consistent yeah. idea. They're looking yep. for rituals and coming together to share ideas with other people. And that goes back to God creating us in the garden as communal beings. He didn't create Adam all by himself. Adam was alone, and that wasn't good. Mm -hmm. He needed a helper, and that helpmate was made. And now we have man and woman, and we have community. We have family. Then we have all those structures that are built up around around society and church and all of those things that Mm -hmm. bring us those connections. But those connections are really only meaningful in the light of what God has showed us. And there are a lot of statements in here. Science has shown that all human beings belong to the same species, so we should respect each other. Well, tell that to the lions. Right. They don't respect each other. It's very They kill whoever they want to. So mm-hmm. it, you, have to, you have to be totally arbitrary and mm-hmm. create your own view of truth to make any of this make sense. And ultimately, mm-hmm. it winds up falling apart. They talk in the article about how it's, it's, they say it's a common misconception that people think that atheists, agnostics, you know, these people don't have any meaning to their life. They're like, that's just a misconception. We make our own meaning and we have these meaningful, wonderful lives. And it's like, well, yes, you might borrow from someone else's worldview in order to give your worldview significance, but on its own, your worldview doesn't give you any kind of meaning or purpose or significance. Because that's if right. you're just, uh, you know, you're a highly evolved creature that when you die, that's it, you're dead. No one will remember you existed. Ultimately, Earth will eventually, life will go extinct. Nobody will remember anything existed. Then your life doesn't have any ultimate meaning or purpose. You can borrow from a different worldview, the biblical worldview, in order to try and give your life meaning and purpose, but it isn't consistent within your own worldview. And they don't, you don't see that recognized throughout these different people's answers, that they're borrowing from the biblical worldview in order to try and come up with meaning in their life. Mm-hmm. And a great question to ask somebody if you're engaging on this topic and they're not a believer, and they say, well, I believe that we should care about people, that we should seek people's best, that we should care about the, the globe and so forth. A good question to ask is a very simple one. Why? Mm-hmm. Why do you believe that? How do you know that to be true? In, in other words, who says? By what authority do you declare that we should treat people with respect? Mm-hmm. By what authority do you say we should take care of planet Earth? And for the secularist, for someone rejecting the Bible, when they boil it down, the authority is themselves. I just I've don't think you should do that. This is the best thing. Therefore, I think this right. is what we should do. And that is totally arbitrary because each person's opinions can be very, very different. So right. who's absolutely right? Mm-hmm. You take God out of the equation, there is no absolute standard for these things. And then you run into this problem. Well, if there's no absolute standard, then I can't consistently say that Hitler was wrong. Right. He sought happiness in his own way. Mm -hmm. I can't say the murderer is wrong or the rapist is wrong because that's how they seek happiness. That's just their version of truth and reality. And you can't condemn that because there's no absolute standard in their thinking. And Mm -hmm. so it's very inconsistent and it breaks down when you push it to its logical conclusion. And that's just a great way to show people your worldview is inconsistent. It has no foundation. And the principle that you do love, caring for humanity, community, so forth, mm-hmm. you're borrowing that from the only real truth, which is God's Word yeah. and real Christianity. And if you're looking to learn more about these types of things, we've got a great resource, uh, this three-volume book set, World Religions and Cults, mm-hmm. yep. deals not only with the typical religious views that you'd think of, like uh, Buddhism or Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or all those things, but also the naturalistic religions. Mm-hmm. Because even those who claim to be humanists or atheists 
they're religious. They yes. just present those things in a different way. So mm -hmm. this resource would be a great way for you to learn how to share the gospel with those people and point them to the real hope and the real answers that can be found in Jesus. Mm -hmm. The appendix in volume three is especially excellent. I, I really like that appendix. I may have co-authored it, but it's excellent appendix. So I encourage you to check I'd also that out. encourage, it's a great volume set, not only because Avery wrote one of the appendixes, all right, but, and Roger's the general editor of the whole thing, I believe. I didn't uh, even mention that. Uh, 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 <laughs> Your I, 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 name is probably displayed on the too, front. Okay, on empiricism. So the, uh, but also it's great for personal study, for homeschooling, mm -hmm. for an apologetics, for a course mm -hmm. on world religions. Yeah, I mean, we have yeah. online courses yeah. based on the book series yeah. now. Mm -hmm. Two so, of them are out and we're working on the other yeah. two right now. Go to AnswersEducation.com. You can check out the online courses, mm -hmm. um, which are excellent as well. All right, so our next article here, even after being locked together for months, American birth rates are tanking even further. So back in March, April, yeah. when all the you know, lockdowns and quarantines and stuff all started, people started predicting, of course, there would be a baby boom, which should be happening about now, you know, November, December, January, in and around there, we should have seen this. If there was gonna be a baby boom, that's when it should have happened, because um, that's you know, nine months after. And they found, this one scientist who's been researching this from the University of Maryland, he's found that's not the case. Birth rates are actually lower than they were the previous year, which is not what you'd expect historically when there's a big event like that. Babies come, that hasn't happened. And so he, it's, he said, this is a bad situation. These declines we're seeing now are pretty substantial. The birth rate every year is the lowest it's ever been. And so this is not good that it's lower again. <laughs> and when we think yeah. about this uh, from a biblical perspective, we want to value life. And as, mm -hmm. as Christians, I hope we could look at the Christian segment of the population and see that that's not the case. But we often follow pretty close in those trends because we imitate the world in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And another claim that they make in here is that, in fact, the abortions are now the lowest they've been in America since Roe v. Wade. Now, we would say that that's probably not accurate because you're not taking into account the uh, the chemical, the abortifacient mm -hmm. pills that can be taken yeah. morning after that don't pill. get brought into the statistics. statistics. Yeah. And if mm -hmm. those things are happening, we have the technology now that wasn't available at the time of World War II, per, yeah. se, per se, that brought us the baby boom generation. Uh, here we have the technology available to eliminate those pregnancies without anybody ever knowing about it, really. Mm -hmm. And so we think that's likely part of what's behind this. Uh, we, even though we have that opportunity to make those new lives and bring new life into the world, it's being snuffed out by things mm -hmm. like abortion and, and the pills. Yeah, I went back and looked at the study, um, some of the details of the study, and the study kind of talked about how, and other articles associated with this talked about how, well, the reason people don't want to have children and why they, this hasn't led to a baby boom is people are very uncertain, right? Like, who wants to have a baby in the middle of a pandemic? You might lose your job. You, your financial situation might not be stable. You know, they gave different reasons for that. But if, if you really think about this from a worldview point, it's much deeper than that because we've raised generations of people to think of babies as something that's bad. They're an inconvenience. They're a choice and you can just get rid of them if you don't want to make that choice for yourself. We've raised generations to think that way and so of course the birth rate is going to go down. It's going to continue to go down because life is not valued. Being a parent is not something that's, um, like what we were talking about earlier with the article with about the family with the nine kids, it's not typically celebrated and we don't point toward that as, you know, 
something that's wonderful and it's worth the sacrifice. Of course, of course it's a sacrifice, but it's yeah. worth the sacrifice, right? Our culture doesn't celebrate life that way. Instead, it's treated like, well, that's just a lifestyle choice some people make. And it's, that's, not, that's not a biblical viewpoint. When we come to scripture, we see that God has created us to be fruitful and multiply. Children are a blessing. They are a gift from the Lord. Mm-hmm. They are yeah. something that is wonderful and that is to be celebrated. And that is a natural consequence of marriage. Um, of course, we live in a sin-cursed and broken world. And sometimes that's sadly not able to happen because of a variety of circumstances, but that's a different issue. Um, but it's just such a difference when you look at the biblical worldview and the secular worldview. So it really, I don't think it's ultimately about finances and yeah. <laughs> about that. I think ultimately it really goes back to the cultural mindset and how generations have been taught to think about children. Yeah. And Brenda here says that she can't verify that data because they've got three new quarantine grandbabies. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> None named Corona, right? Hopefully not. not. Hopefully that, right? not. <laughs> and I've got other questions. Really, after the Super Bowl, is there a baby boom consistently? I think they've actually they statistically s- demonstrated that. Have they yeah. really? Yeah. That's okay. I'll take that at face value. (laughs) All right, this next one. um, California professor says heterosexuality looks very tragic and fuels misogyny, toxic masculinity in new book. So wait, so in this research in the new book, she had to interview... Thousands and thousands I, I think of people. The right? other article I read said a hundred. A hundred. So huge okay. sample size here. A hundred people. Oh, and comments Terrible on Facebook sample too, right? size. Yes. Comments. And she looked uh, at comments on Facebook first. Okay. So it's very, very thorough research. Um, so this professor from the University of California, Riverside, has written a new book on. So she specializes in gender and sexuality studies. And she's written this new book. And in this new book, she describes heterosexuality as a tragedy. It fuels misogyny. Um, it causes all kinds of societal problems. And if everyone was just LGBTQ like she is, the world would be paradise. Well, I don't think that's quite the way it's going to work out for her, though. Yeah. And what really struck me... I might have me... more problems like in the first article, <laughs> yes. but oh, I digress. <laughs> what, what struck me is basically what she's saying is that if you see sin in these heterosexual relationships, of course, she wouldn't use that language. Right. But if yes. you see sin in these biblical relationships, you should exchange it for another sin and it'll make your life better the sin of homosexuality or other Mm -hmm. sexual perversions that she would embrace. And really that's turning to the wrong solution. We shouldn't Mm -hmm. turn to another sin to satisfy ourselves. We should be turning to Christ. And so if I had the opportunity to sit down with this woman and explain those things to her, that's where my focus would be. Mm -hmm. It would be, you shouldn't be turning from one sinful, destructive behavior to another one that you think is better, but you should look to Christ because he's the one who can bring you true fulfillment and joy and Mm -hmm. make all of those relationships better. They're not perfect, of course not. We're still gonna sin against one another in our marriages and in those relationships. But when we are truly following Christ's example and those biblical structures, we're we're going to look different than the world because the Mm -hmm. Holy Spirit's empowering us to love and forgive and to show kindness and to sacrifice for others in those relationships. Mm-hmm. So, Roger, you're saying that if I got a problem with gossip and slandering, I should turn to robbery instead to fix the other <laughs> it problem? It could placate you for a little while, but I don't think it's going to solve the ultimate problem. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, it's interesting when you look at these different um, different people who are studying society and coming up with models and stuff. They, If you don't understand the true heart of people, you don't yeah. understand, you don't have that biblical worldview to understand that we're, we're sinners, and so that's why we sin against one another. You're not going to be able to fix these different problems because you have the wrong starting point, you're going to have the wrong solution. What she conveniently doesn't mention is that different studies have shown that abuse rates in the um, LGBT community are 
are equal to or greater than abuse rates in the heterosexual community. So that certainly isn't an answer. It's not an answer in a biblical worldview, but the biblical worldview can explain why there's abuse in all these different relationships. It's because we're sinners. We sin against one another. And the, like Roger said, the answer is not to turn from one kind of relationship to, to another one that's right. a sinful relationship to find you know, happiness or find whatever. It's to turn to the gospel and, and, and find your fulfillment in Jesus Christ and in who he is and what he has done for you, not in these different earthly relationships. Mm -hmm. Some yeah. of which are sinful relationships. And I think you really see her trying to somehow get affirmation for what she is doing. She's mm -hmm. falling, she's a lesbian mm -hmm. by profession, and she's trying to affirm that her sinful lifestyle, no, it's a good thing. She's trying to present it as good. She wants people to accept her. And I think there's a reason for that because she knows mm -hmm. in her heart of hearts, because she's made in God's image, that this is wrong and it is sinful. Her conscience screams out against it, at least until it's been mm -hmm. seared by a continual sin. And so she's trying to suppress that truth in that unrighteousness to continue in her sin. There you go, quoting the Bible again. I know. <laughs> but in truth, we need to look at her and everyone who, who struggles like her in these areas. She's a sinner who needs salvation mm -hmm. in Christ. She's trying to suppress that truth, but the truth she's suppressing, suppressing she needs with eternal yeah, let, mm -hmm. let, a, let that drive us to have compassion for these people and share the hope of Christ with them. Mm -hmm. yep. Absolutely. All right, our next one here comes from New Scientist. Flowering plants may be 100 million years older than we thought. That's so, not so big a deal. 100 million years, give or like take, you know. 50%. <laughs> Here's our weekly forget everything you knew about evolution article. It's all, it's all changed. Uh, so this, is, this article was very interesting. Um, oh talking about the oldest, um, they were looking at the fossils to try and figure out, okay, when did flowering plants evolve? Because this has been a great mystery. We're gonna look at that in the next article. For a very long time, when did these flowering plants evolve? Because they all just, all of a sudden appear on the scene with great diversity, mm -hmm. fully formed and functioning. Where did they come from? And so this article um, looked at, or the study rather, looked at 15,000 different fossils from 200 different families. So very broad, a lot of fossils. And it, it says here that the, one of the scientists involved said, we wanted to have a model that only relies on fossils and doesn't use genomic data or evolutionary assumptions. Okay, so these are supposed to be independent <laughs> lines of reasoning. We right. can use fossils, the fossils, data. we can use the genetic data to analyze these things and they should get to the same conclusion. Well, they've realized that doesn't work in this case, but evolution can still explain it all, never mind. And so as they examined all of these different pieces, they claimed that they're going to do a study looking just at the fossils that doesn't, re doesn't use genomic data or evolutionary assumptions. Well, they assume evolution in order to even be able to do the study about how they evolve. Like, what? <laughs> and then they come to the conclusion a few sentences later, that's because if a number of related fossils all appear between 135 and 130 million years ago, they must have evolved from a much earlier common ancestor not present in but the wait. fossil record. <laughs> I thought they weren't going to use evolutionary assumptions. So Didn't they just... Please catch what just happened. They're saying there's so much diversity at this one time. And we don't find any ancestor further down the fossil record for this great diversity. We don't find it in the fossil record. It's not tangibly there, but there's so much diversity. That can't have occurred in just 5 million years. There must be there a must common be. ancestor that we've not found yet. And, and the it must amount be of diversity million years proves it. Yes. So they're literally assuming evolution to assume there must be an ancient ancestor, but they're not using evolutionary yeah. assumptions. So this is the fallacy mm -hmm. called begging the question. Yeah. You're assuming evolution is true to show that evolution was true in this case. Well, saying we, that you're not using evolutionary yeah. assumptions. So it, it was just crazy to me how they can they can honestly 
say those things because they're so grounded in that mm -hmm. worldview, they don't even recognize their own assumptions mm -hmm. are blinding them to those truths. But as we've said multiple times, the problem isn't the evidence, it's your starting point, and in right. that which informs your interpretation of yeah. the evidence. And Darwin had that problem mm -hmm. as well. I think he this did. This one comes from the BBC. New light shed on Charles Darwin's abominable mystery. So his abominable mystery was the evolution of these flowering plants because yep. he recognized 150 years ago, they just appear out of nowhere and there's so much diversity, where did it come from? And it really vexed and puzzled him. And crazy and crazily enough, it's been 150 years and the researchers who are still looking at it today say, the mystery's still unsolved. <laughs> so I'm like, well, maybe because you've got the wrong starting point and you shouldn't be starting with man's word and these evolutionary ideas. You should be starting with God's word, which explains why you'd have these flowering plants in all these yeah, different kinds, fully formed and functioning. Yeah, and Darwin seems to be responding. He's writing a, a letter here to his colleague Hooker, and he's responding to this other gentleman, Carruthers, who was proposing at the same time that these things were actually created by God during this time. So he probably held some form of uh, progressive creation, we sure. call it today. Mm -hmm. But at least he's saying that God formed these things and they appear rapidly in the fossil record because God intervened and, and those things were created at that time. Now, we wouldn't accept that. We'd say they're created and they just happen to show up in that layer based mm -hmm. on the flood the and the sediment. way things are deposited. But he's still at least trying to bring God into the picture while Darwin and the others of his time are trying to push God out of the picture for a truly naturalistic mm -hmm. uh, view of science that doesn't allow any divine intervention at any point. And so that's what creates this dilemma. Mm -hmm. If I kick God out of the picture, how do I explain all this stuff? I love this one quote from the, the, from the professor who's doing some of this research. Um, he's talking about this mystery. He's like, why isn't there a gradual evolution of the angiosperms? Why can't we see intermediate forms between them and the flowering plants? And why, when they appear, are they already so diverse? And it's like, well, if you start with the biblical worldview, you'd have your answer to this mystery. It's not a mystery in the biblical worldview. God created these kinds on day three, and you have the flood that buried these different plants. So when you start with God's word, it makes sense. Without it, it's an abominable mystery. But 150 years later, they still can't figure it out. All right, well, that is all the time that we have for today. Um, but we will be back um, with our uh, next slate of articles on Monday. So hopefully you can join us then. God bless. See you later.